I hope you're in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8, and we're going to be looking this morning at 18 through 22. Two weeks ago, we began a series called Follow Me, and I felt that this series was necessary due to the fact that recently, I believe that I have discovered that the Christian community here in America is going through an identity crisis. That identity crisis is they no longer understand or know what it means to be a Christian. It is interesting to me that when I take a look at other churches' websites, how many of them are revisiting the subject of what it means to be a Christian. Or what is the call of a Christian? Or what is the will of God for a Christian? It seems to be a subject that so many are concerned uh, about today. Because there seems to be a real, like I have said twice already, an identity crisis amongst believers in Jesus Christ. As the world continues to grow hostile towards Christians, which we were told from the beginning it would... And that we are shown less and less favoritism by the world as believers in Jesus Christ. And as the world moves farther away from God's uh, design for society, those of you and myself who hold to biblical traditions and ethics will begin to be looked upon as a hindrance of the development of society. And they begin to grow hostile towards us. It is amazing what is happening not only here in America, but around the world concerning Christian persecution. It's something that we cannot hide our face from any longer. We must understand that this is a reality. Over the last two years, I have never seen as much political hostility towards Christianity in the United States of America as I have seen in the last two years. Things are changing. And many Christians are, well, frankly, let me give you the technical term for it. They're freaked out about it. They don't know what to do. What's happening? I don't get it. And a lot of that confusion and a lot of that identity crisis is due to the fact that many, when originally coming to Christ, wasn't given a gospel presentation that is reflective of the Scriptures. Many were sold the gospel. Many the gospel was marketed to. And many to many, the gospel has been changed to create a more attractive message that would allow the individual to continue in self even after their experience of being born again. So what we decided to do is we decided to go back to the beginning. And let's take a look at what Jesus said from the beginning would qualify one who would follow after him. And we've already discovered that Jesus continuously presented the cost of discipleship to those who were curious and those who desired to follow him. Continuously, he stated to them, this is what it's going to require of you from the beginning setting a proper expectation with his followers from the start. Not an ambiguity that they would have to contend with later. 
not a gospel presentation that allowed for them to experience their best life now. It was a gospel presentation that was focused on Christ. It was focused on the will of the Father. And it was focused on the kingdom of God. And the only thing he required you to do concerning yourself was to die to yourself. Not a very popular message today. Probably not going to sell a lot of books writing about that anymore. But as a result, we have discovered that many Christians today are in a very a difficult position because they have an identity crisis because their identity has not been solidified from the beginning perfectly as God would have it to be. So today we continue our series, Follow Me, in a message entitled, Follow Me to New Priorities. Follow Me to New Priorities. And we find this challenge in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8, verses 18 through 22, where we have two individuals who want to serve Jesus, want to follow Jesus on their own terms. And in both cases, Jesus doesn't slam the door but he asks them to count the cost. And in both cases, we don't know if they chose to or not. But Jesus set the bar and he set it high. And it gives us a moment of pause, a time to reflect, a time to consider, because in both cases, their priorities were challenged. Priorities for the believer in Jesus Christ is uh, a real problem today. You should be able to identify a Christian by what he or she does in their life. Their priorities as a believer in Jesus Christ should reflect that of their belief in Jesus Christ. They should go hand in hand. But today in America, we get so sidetracked, we get so delusioned, we get off track so quickly, so distracted, so derailed, so easily that it's sometimes very hard to discover what the true priorities of a believer in Jesus Christ is. And then it's even more uh, difficult to discover if that one says he or she truly believes in Jesus, if that is accurate or not. Our priorities should be based upon what we truly believe. In fact, many have stated that what someone truly believes will be reflected in their priorities. What are your priorities? Well, I don't know what my priorities are. Well, what are you doing with your life? How are you using your time? Where are you applying your efforts? A priority is a thing that is regarded as more important than any other. Or one wrote this, he says, uh, a priority is the fact or condition of being regarded or treated as more important, meaning that your priorities should be reflected in that in which you do. And many Christians cannot say that they are reflecting and living out their priorities properly. As a believer in Jesus Christ, whatever priorities we had were left there at that moment. The moment we came to Christ, that's where our priorities ended and God's priorities for our lives began. And Jesus is asking these two individuals to consider their priorities before they go and follow him. As believers in Jesus Christ, we should discover what God's priorities are for our life, and then simply we are to do them. 
But I don't know about you, but I remember growing up as a young man, and one of the sayings that my father loved to throw my way was, son, you better check your priorities. Did you ever hear that? How many of you heard that from my dad? He seemed to tell that to everybody. Son, you better check your priorities. He was saying that to me because I wasn't being responsible. I wasn't maturing the way he felt that I should mature. And I discovered that as I began to look at this, that is so indicative of many Christians today. You know, we have a problem with an epidemic of immature Christians in America. They haven't gone to maturity in their faith in Christ. And as a result, their priorities are all whacked out. They're not in line with what they say they believe. And it's a problem. It is a real problem. So we definitely discover that immaturity is playing into this lack of living out our priorities in Jesus Christ. But today we begin to look at what our priorities should be and then saying to the Lord, Lord, help me fulfill this in my life. You know what your personal challenges are. You know what occupies your time. And I ask you the question this morning, have you gone through the Word and found how Christ would have you spend your time, how Christ would have you live your life, how Christ would have you use your resources, etc., and then made that a priority and then live that priority out? That's what we need to begin to do. And that's what I find here in our text this morning. As we continue through Matthew's gospel, we discover now that he brings us to a point where once again the crowds were massing upon Jesus. News was spreading through the outer regions of Israel that something was occurring, that someone had arrived, and it was ridiculous. He was doing miracles, he was feeding the hungry, he was rebuking the religious leaders, he was confounding the wise, he was uh, ministering to the simple... He spoke with authority, which was something that they were not accustomed to, and he was an uneducated young Jewish man who was a carpenter from Nazareth. And it got people's attention. And people started to mass upon him. And often we see Jesus pushing away from the crowds. As Jesus went through, he uniquely chose his disciples. Where at that culture and at that time, the disciples always chose the teacher. And based upon the discipleship of a teacher, meaning how many disciples they had, it indicated if that teacher was well-respected or not. And so the more disciples you had, the more credible you became and the most sought after you were. And of course, we're referring to the higher education, individuals that were uh, older in age. They wanted to attach themselves to these teachers uh, to lift themselves up to become more credible in their own fields and areas of life. But Jesus was just the opposite. He wasn't so much concerned about people attaching themselves to him. He went out and chose people, which was different. It was strange. And this morning we find people who were attaching themselves to Jesus, but they hadn't count the cost of doing so before they did so. And Jesus then asks them very clearly to consider what they're about to do before they do it. And within his replies, you discover the hard issue of the individual. 
It's not something that we could see from our perspective, but Jesus being God could see it from his perspective and said, no, things aren't right yet. You need to know what you're getting yourself into. You need to count the cost before you do it. It's amazing to me how many times we find in the Gospels that Jesus started amassing a huge number of people and instead of rejoicing and gloating and and putting up the thermometer saying, look at how much we've grown as a movement in the last two, three uh, weeks, he would begin to teach and his teaching would always have the same effect. It would thin the crowds. They love the miracles, They loved the entertainment of watching him rebuke the religious leaders. They couldn't believe that some young uh, carpenter from Nazareth would have such audacity to rebuke the religious leaders of that time. They loved watching these things, but then he asked them to deny themselves, to take up their cross, to follow after him. And the crowds thinned every single time. We look at these things that we may once again rediscover a true understanding of what it means to follow Jesus and therefore create proper expectations of what the Christian life looks like as a follower of Christ. That's why we're doing this. So let's begin in verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side, and a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. First of all, let's understand that what Jesus said here was not politically correct. He wasn't concerned about that. We have the individuals that were probably gathered in the hype of the masses And as Jesus wanted to embark on the other side of the lake or the Sea of Galilee, they said, we want to go with you. We want to follow you. And the one scribe says it so brilliantly, I'll go wherever you go. Oh, really? And then Jesus says that unusual statement about foxes and birds and the Son of Man having nowhere to lay his head. And then the other young man said, well, let me please go and bury my father, which you would think, well, that's a, uh, a reasonable request of Jesus. Now think about this for a moment. Think about Jesus turning to him and saying, let the dead bury the dead. Can you imagine? I, I imagine me as a pastor saying that to someone. Why weren't you at church? I had to bury my father. Let the dead bury the dead. That'd go over really big, wouldn't it? You're the most insensitive pastor I've ever heard. We've got to look at these things. What was Jesus saying and why was he saying what he was saying? Once again, we find that, the, that Matthew, in the manner in which he wrote, distinguished the large crowds from the true disciples. He saw a difference between the two. And disciple can be used loosely in the, in the culture. 
So understand that a disciple was one who followed, but it's not always necessarily uh, indicating one who truly believes. Okay? It's just the way the word was used at that time. There were many teachers at that time who had followers, disciples, who continued for a period of time, but then they broke away because they couldn't go any farther with that teacher. They weren't getting it, or they didn't want to sacrifice what was necessary to sacrifice to continue on with that teacher. So we see here that as he tries to depart, people try to hook up with him. And Jesus asks them to count the cost. The first individual is a scribe. One who had a profession that was well sought after at that time. He was well educated, a scribe was. Not only in religious affairs, but legal affairs. He was one that was known amongst the community. He was one that usually enjoyed prosperity and wealth at that time. In fact, scribes were highly regarded by the community because they served a multiplicity of responsibilities. Some of your translations may indicate him as being a teacher of the law, and that's not necessarily incorrect. Uh, Often they would uh, expound upon the law, but not the text of the law itself, but the commentaries of the religious leaders at that time. So as a Pharisee would write, and it's usually the scribes who attach themselves to the Pharisees because doctrinally, scribes always seem to indicate that they believed in the resurrection. Sadducees, on the other hand, did not. But scribes in the Bible always seem to believe in the resurrection and have attached themselves to Pharisees. And so what these scribes would do... They would kind of be um, assistants or mentors to the Pharisees, and they would then answer questions based upon the comments of the Pharisees. So they wouldn't comment on the text, they would comment on the comments of the Pharisees. That's probably way more information than scribes than you wanted, but you need to know. This was radical that this scribe was saying this to Jesus. This was something that didn't occur. He was an uneducated, 30-year-old individual from Nazareth who was a carpenter who really didn't have any qualifications as a teacher. But this scribe desired to attach himself to Jesus. There are many who look at this scenario and believe that this scribe being outside the city of Jerusalem in the outer regions of Israel was one that was not in a position to um, flourish in his profession. Scribes were so um, desired and so well respected that those scribes who attached themselves to very successful people often enjoyed rooms within the palace where the individual that they've attached themselves lives, or if it was a Pharisee, uh, a room within the temple, meaning that the scribes were taken care of very well. But being on the outskirts of uh, of the region, he didn't have anyone to attach himself to. And now he sees the popularity of this one Jesus coming to the surface. 
And it appears that he says, this is it. I'm going to hitch my cart to him. I'm going to ride his coattails into success. And one of the things that the scribes really looked forward to was that place in the palace, was that place in the temple. And I think it is so interesting that if that was the mindset of this scribe, that you're going to provide me this place where I can reside, now look at Jesus' response. Really? Foxes don't have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Wow, doesn't that make so much more sense? Don't follow me thinking that I'm going to provide you this place of prominence and the place of prosperity. Because where I am going, I will enjoy none of that. Count the cost. If this scribe had that agenda, which most scholars and commentators believe that he did, that Jesus was going to be a means to an end for him, We see this all the time in our political uh, circles here in America. How many attach themselves to a certain party thinking that that party coattails is just going to lead them right into successful election and office? Same thing was here. I will follow you wherever you go, really. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. One scholar, and I think he rightfully so, looked at this and said, you know what, it is interesting that the scribe probably thought that he was amongst company that he would excel within. Because everyone that Jesus chose was a fisherman, blue collar, people of no reputation. This guy thought, no doubt, an educated man like me, Jesus is going to be all over it. Considering what I bring to the table Jesus is going to say, whoa, i got my own scribe. This was huge. And Jesus doesn't slam the door on him, doesn't say no, but asks him to count the cost. I like what Spurgeon said. I wonder if this man thought, well, now I'm a scribe, and if I join that company, I shall be a leader. I perceive that they are only fishermen, the bulk of them, and I will come in amongst them, and I shall be a great acquisition to this little band. I shall no doubt be the secretary. Perhaps he may have thought that he was something to be made out of uh, such a position, and there was one who he thought could do it for him, and that was Jesus. You know, this is something that we need to consider. How many have followed Jesus believing that he is simply a means to an end? That he is going to help them accomplish and realize their goals, their objectives, without ever submitting themselves to the Lordship of Christ. I like what one wrote when he wrote about the background of this. He said, Jesus' stern reply checks this enthusiastic recruit because his form of discipleship is different sort from that which is experienced in his prior training. Teachers of the law enjoyed a relatively high status within Judaism, but Jesus has no school or synagogue or prestigious place of honor amongst the religious establishment. It wasn't going to happen. 
We need to ask ourselves, have we come to Christ with the thinking and the expectation that He is here merely to help me gain those things that I want to accomplish? If we have, we have a sorely misunderstood, distorted view of Christianity. It is not my will that I'm seeking to be done. It is His will that I'm seeking to be done as a Christian. We cannot follow Jesus Christ on our own terms. It is Christ who initiated the relationship. It is Christ who pursued us into a relationship. It is now Him who is capable and uh, it's appropriate for Him to do so, set the standards for this relationship. His focus, Jesus' focus, was on the will of the Father to the point of complete and utter self-denial which took the form of the cross. Jesus being the Son of Man, and He reminds this scribe who would have been fully aware of this term used in the Old Testament of the Messiah. He is saying, I am the Son of Man. Jesus' favorite term to call Himself Messiah was the Son of Man. And as a result... He should have realized that this was his king that he was trying to attach himself to, not just merely a teacher. And throughout the book of Matthew, we see the Son of God uh, developed as a humble servant who has come to forgive the sins of the common sinner in his earthly ministry. We see the Son of Man continue into the suffering servant whose atoning death and resurrection will redeem his people. The Son of Man is the glorious King and Judge who will return to bring the kingdom of heaven to this earth. He is the Son of Man. Scribe, consider what you are doing. Count the cost. I will not be followed on your terms. You must follow me on my terms. You must lay down your priorities and and adopt mine in their place. You must follow me wherever I go. And as a result, you will have to deny yourself. Then we have our second individual that we discover in verse 21. And another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury the dead. This is astonishing. This is the last thing that this young man would have suspected. And yet Jesus stopped him in his tracks and asked him to consider his priorities. What is truly a priority, me or your father? Now let's understand some things here. It is most agreed upon that this young man was not in the middle of the funeral planning for his father's. That is a multiple day process that would have required almost all of his attention and time. The vast majority of Jewish individuals and uh, evangelical individuals who read this state that this young man is not saying that his father is dead or is currently dying, but is asking Jesus permission to wait until his father dies and then follow after him. Now you think that might be a good thing, but Jesus saw through that. And even though, even though, 
At that time, the Jewish young men were compelled by the law of God in the form of honoring mother and father to take care of mother and father when they got older. What a difference from today, huh? Today, mothers and fathers are taking care of their kids until they're 50, 60. Back then, the kids were supposed to be preparing their lives to take care of their parents when they got older. That's why I'm preparing Autumn now. And as soon as she graduates in two years and gets a job, then I can explore the Holy Land and get my handicap under... I'm kidding. But this was something that was very culturally expected of him. It was his obligation. But he is basically saying to Jesus, I will do it when it's convenient for me. I want to do it until after my father's estate is settled. I'll do it after I have secured all of these things. Then I will come and follow you. And Jesus says, no way. You let the dead bury the dead. Of course he was referring to the spiritually dead, burying the physically dead. Jesus knew that this was a matter of life and death in this young man's life. And he needed to understand, no, now is not the time for this. Now is the time that you come and follow me and allow the dead to bury the dead. As one wrote about this, and I think it is interesting, he says, your first duty, this is Jesus, is to follow me. Let the spiritually dead bury the physical dead. An unsaved person can do that kind of work. But there is a work in which you alone can do. Give the best of your life to what really lasts. Don't waste your life on trivia. As one went on, D.A. Carson, he wrote, The dead is a stark description of those outside the disciples' group as lacking spiritual life. The language, no less than a demand, is uncompromising to the point of offensiveness. Jesus knew what he was saying. Get your priorities straight. Now, this brings up a very good but difficult issue. Can we get sidetracked by those things that aren't necessarily evil and would even be considered good in the Bible? And the answer is yes. Jesus Christ demands that he be first in all things. In the book of Colossians, Paul calls it the preeminence of Christ in our life. Our heart attitude should be Him first in all things, and then everything else is subjected to that understanding. As much as I love my wife and my daughter, Jesus comes first. And they would have it no other way. And the same for them. Now, when Jesus comes first, then everything normally falls into line. But at any moment, Christ can say, come and follow me. And that's when we need to be obedient to what God has said. Christ is first in all things. It is interesting here that if you notice, there's a phrase used here. It is a phrase used by this disciple who then turns to the Lord after uh, making his uh, declaration. In verse 21, another of his disciples said to him, Let me first go and bury my father. It was Spurgeon who saw in those words, Lord, me first. And Jesus saying, No, me first. 
in all things. We must weigh our priorities against the priorities that the Lord has established within his words for our personal life. I think it's imperative that you understand that. Now there's a third individual that Matthew does not bring us to, but Luke does. And if you would turn there, in the parallel account found in Luke chapter 9, we find that there's a third individual that Matthew simply just doesn't record, but Luke does record as he is writing his letter on to his uh, master Theophilus. And as Luke is writing, Luke remembers that there was a third one in verse 60. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, which we have just read. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. In verse 61, Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand on the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, as a Jewish individual, which we believe that this is, they would have had a great familiarity with the Old Testament and the stories contained within there. And no doubt he remembered a story concerning Elijah and Elisha, found in 1 Kings 19, verses 19 and 20. And as Elijah was calling Elisha, Elisha asked for permission to go and to say goodbye, and that permission was granted. This time, however, in the almost the identical scenario where one then wants to attach himself onto Jesus but does so conditionally, let me first go, let me first, there's that sentence again, that phrase again, me first, let me first, Lord. And Jesus says no, showing that he was greater than even the prophets Elijah's call upon Elisha. Jesus says, no, you drop what you are doing and follow after me. It is fascinating to consider. He uses an example, an agricultural example, that you and I probably wouldn't appreciate today. Living in a condo, I don't have many opportunities to plow a field. Haven't done it. But there's a very interesting understanding amongst this phrase. They were very accustomed to plowing fields. Again, this was the outer region of Jerusalem. Farming and agriculture was the mainstay of the economy. And as people would have been fully aware of what is required to plow a field, when an individual such as the farmer would go to plow a field, there were two things that he needed to do. Number one, he needed to keep his eyes fixed upon a set target to allow the plow to go straight. It usually was a tree or some other object that they could line the plow up with and then determine that they were on a straight course, therefore uh, producing a straight line. And Jesus was referring to that. You must keep your eyes on me, not to get distracted, not look back, keep them on me, and you will run a straight course. You will run a straight line. You won't get distracted by the things that are around you. And then he goes on to say, and looks back, is not fit for the kingdom of God. You cannot go forward while looking back. 
One of the worst spills my daughter did, and she's going to hate me afterwards, is one time when she decided to run in the mall, and she was running, but she was looking back as she was running ahead of me, and I told her, be careful, you're going to run into something. And as she's running, oh, you know, she's looking back, oh, and this was just last week, and oh, <laughs> and, <laughs> and she was, had her eyes on me, but she was running ahead, and she ran into something and fell down. We cannot be looking back if we are going forward. And Jesus deduced from this individual's request that that's what the cause was. Don't look back if you're going to go forward. In each one of these cases, we discover that Jesus was discouraging a half-hearted commitment. He wanted a full-on, wholehearted commitment from those who would follow him. As one commentator wrote, he says, Christ's followers are not made of half-hearted stuff or dreamy sentimentality. No considerations of family or friends, though lawful in themselves concerning the law of God, must be allowed to turn them aside from utter and complete abandonment to him. Are you starting to get the picture? We need to reevaluate our priorities as Christians because we have already been challenged on material comforts, jobs and occupations, family and friends within these examples. And Jesus said, I must be preeminent above them all. I know that sounds radical. But I ask you the question, does not God deserve that radical devotion? Doesn't Jesus Christ deserve that radical devotion on the basis of all that he has done for you and I? Giving us new life, coming from heaven to this earth in the form of a man to die as our Savior and to rise on the third day to subject himself to his creation and to be uh, brutally despised in the manner in which he was. That was God who did that on our behalf. The greatest testimony of love ever conveyed to this world was there at the cross. How should we react any differently? Now I want you to see for yourself that the Bible doesn't tell us what happened to these three people. It's almost as if the Spirit, through its, His inspiration of the Word of God, wanted to leave this open-ended. Asking you and I to consider where we are today with the Lord. Have we allowed other things to become a priority over our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Because if we have, then God would say, follow me to new priorities. It's not about you. It's about Him. It's not about what you want. It's about what He wants from you, in and through you. That's what it's all about. We are here in this new life to bring glory onto our Father. Let us not forget that. Because everything in this world is self, right? Self-preservation, self-survival, self-entertainment. Everything is about self. Jesus has died to self. Follow after me. 
It's not about you. It's all about me. And I ask you, and I encourage you to consider this question. What are your priorities? Because you are now confronted with the realities of these examples. What are your priorities? What would you have said? Oh, I'd love to believe that as the scribe, I would say, I don't need a home, Lord. Wherever you go, I would, I'd love to believe that I would say that. Or if it come to burying my father and settling his estate, or if it came to saying goodbye to my family, I would love to believe that I would react in the manner in which Christ would have me react. But can we say that for sure? They're open-ended. We don't know if these people chose to follow him or not. Think of what lies in the wake of the balance of that question. I love what Chuck Swindoll wrote, and I'll close with this. Any one of us, for a number of reasons, may stray in our devotion to God. It takes sheer discipline to remain faithful, especially when trouble hits. However, we can achieve this no matter what the circumstances when our hearts are focused on Him. When your priorities get off center, it is easy to feel disillusioned and complacent. Before you know it, you have allowed a shift to take place in the things you hold dear. Some of the signs that the priorities are out of line are found in the presence of sin, fear, compulsiveness, indifference, and in self-involvement. How can you keep your priorities straight? Begin by asking God to make you sensitive to the areas of your life that He wants to prioritize. Let Him arrange your days and your future. He always brings new experience and ideas to mind. When you try to manage life apart from the Savior's wisdom, fearfulness and worry are always present. You can trust Jesus to keep you balanced and on target. He knows what He has planned for you. And if you will follow Him and His lead, you will be surprised at the joy and the peace He brings your way. We must follow Him to new priorities. That's what we are posed with this morning. That is the question before us. What are your priorities? And have you subjected them to Him?